God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I heard of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might, might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why God has parted from you. He was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, not as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it and to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that Through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow laborers, fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, now as we come to your word, we're asking that you would give us uh, ears to hear, that our hearts would be open to receive from you this morning. I ask that you would uh, help me, help me convey uh, those truths that 
would be helpful to us in our, in our Christian journey, that we can be faithful followers of Christ. And so we commit our time around your word into your hands, bless it and use it for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. The first thing I, I want to draw your attention to is, is what lies behind the events that led to the writing of the letter. This, I believe, is really the most important point to be made. Onesimus is uh, seeking a new life. He's now stolen from his master. He's now running away. He's uh, moving among the crowds in, in Rome and believes that he has the opportunity to start a whole new life. His intention is never to see Philemon again. And so he's taking his future into his own hands. At least that's, that's what he's thinking. It's my moment, my opportunity. I now can go and, and uh, chart a whole new life for myself. And so he's set this self-determined course. And yet, now he finds himself on his way back to Philemon, a converted man, a believer, one who has been brought to true faith in Jesus. He's going to go back and face the man that he's offended. What changed his course? That was God's providential intervention. You see, we're not free. We're not free in the sense of being completely autonomous. We're all dependent on God for our existence, every one of us in this room. And when it comes to his saving work in the world, it's always under God's control from beginning to end. The Lord doesn't allow us, doesn't allow us to stumble along, doesn't allow us to just accidentally uh, encounter him. Rather, he's actively involved in every event that leads us and brings us to a place of true conversion. Perhaps when you look back over your own life, you can see God's hand at work, how it was that he had actually orchestrated certain circumstances, brought particular people into your life to bear witness to you, brought you into the life of the local church. How God was at work every step of the way to bring you to a place of faith, of surrendering to Christ. This is a, a wonderful example of God's sovereignty at work in redemption. Onesimus intended to be lost. He had his own plans, his own ambitions and desires. But said, instead of being lost in the city, he's found. And he's found not by a tracker of runaway slaves, but rather he's found by the Lord of glory. 
The Lord tracked him down. Broke his, broke into his life. Brought him to repentance. Implanted, gifted to him true faith. Constrained him. Drew him. And gave him the desire to surrender. To submit his life to Jesus. This is the way it takes place in all of our lives. Sometimes, certain lives, some of you perhaps, it was a dramatic moment. A dramatic kind of maybe uh, like Paul's conversion. For others of us, more subtle. But we know God's been at work and he brought us to a place where we were ready to surrender to yield our lives to Jesus. I remember I was raised in the church and uh, in service three times a week and resisted and resisted and resisted. Finally, at the age of, uh, oh, I must have been 19, At the end of a service, an evening service in a little church in South Hayward, California, <clears throat> I couldn't resist anymore. And uh, came to the front. Now I was I was raised in a in a Pentecostal church. Many of you know that, and so they had altar calls. Excuse me. <clears throat> and I I came to the front. Um, knelt at that altar and just wept and cried. Several years later, I had the privilege of coming back to the church to preach. And I could see on that altar, there were tears there. They were mine. God had done the work. And he's done that in all of our lives in a unique and very particular way. Onesimus. He's brought to this point of genuine conversion. God's always the one who pursues us. He's the pursuer in salvation. Jesus states this plainly when he said, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And here in the text, uh, the same truth is inferred in verse 15. Take a look at verse 15 again. For this compulsory, I'm sorry, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. The verb here, the verb, he was parted, is in the passive voice. It indicates that Onesimus' leaving Philemon involved something more than his own decision. He was parted. 
He was separated out. He was being acted upon. He was parted from Philemon and uh, laid hold of by the Lord. Separated. God's active. Do you remember that tug? Do you remember the conflicted feelings you had as God by his spirit dealt with you? Setting you apart, drawing you, calling you. God's at work here. And he's at work in a very wonderful and mysterious way. We can certainly resist, resist God's dealings. We often do. We push back. But if we've been parted by him, excuse me, if we've been parted by him, he'll ultimately win. Listen to uh, David. David on this point. Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is light, is as light with you. God pursues his own. The God who saves is the hound of heaven. Perhaps you're familiar with the poem, The Hound of Heaven. Francis Thompson His story is uh, interesting and tragic in many ways. A man who had become addicted to opium, lived on the streets of London for three years, homeless. And finally, he was uh, taken into a home and cared for, and he was converted. He gave his life to Christ. He died at the age of 47, and he wrote this poem, this uh, sort of epic poem. It's autobiographical. Let me just read to you. I'd like to read the opening lines and then the closing lines of this wonderful poem. See if you can relate to this. He writes, I fled him. Down the nights and down the days, I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the Liberthan ways. 
I'm sorry, lab, labyrinthine ways. That's how you say it. Labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, upvisted hopes, I sped and shot, precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears. From those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than my feet. All things betray thee, who betrayest me. Then the lines, the poem closes. Rise up, rise, clasp my hand and come. Halts by me that footfall. Is my gloom, after all, shade of his hand outstretched caressingly? Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. You've been running. Trying to go your own way just like just like Onesimus. And the one that we're seeking, and often we just don't realize it. It's we're seeking the Lord. There's a hollowness, there's an emptiness, there's a longing. And he chases us down, apprehends us, lays hold of our lives. This is what happened to Onesimus. Seeking to be lost, he's found by the Lord of glory. There are two other applications that that I want to mention. They're found here in the story of Onesimus and Philemon. One has to do with godly leadership. And the other speaks to the power of reconciliation. In the opening salutation, there's an understated and yet uh, crucial tact taken by Paul in order to successfully advocate for Onesimus. The issue at hand is, um, it's a sensitive one. Uh, and Paul, he was very much aware of this, that this, this master-slave relationship is a delicate one, and, and it becomes in some ways a little more complicated when a slave is now a brother in Christ, and you've got a master and a slave. The relationship is going to be changed. The way they, they see each other, the approach that, that the master takes to the slave or the servant is going to be tempered. It's going to be reshaped by the fact that now my slave, my servant, is a fellow believer, one who, who loves Christ. And so Paul, he, he, his approach is respectful and it's tactful. And the opening greeting, I think, sets the tone, and it also discloses uh, the approach Paul's going to take. 
I wonder if, if you can see it. In verse 1, Paul, a prisoner, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, makes reference then to Timothy, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Now this is a, this is a very different salutation than the one found in, in Colossians, the letter that this note accompanies. Uh, in Colossians, the opening line is, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So here in Philemon, Paul identifies himself, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. In the Colossian letter, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. It appears that Paul didn't want to pull uh, rank on, on Philemon by exercising his apostolic authority. Rather, he appeals to him as a fellow worker. So there's respect here. There's, there's an understanding of Philemon's character. So Paul consciously refuses to um, force a desired response on Philemon. And he does this. He doesn't want to exert this apostolic authority and pressure on him. Uh, look at verses 8 through 10, and then verse 14. <clears throat> Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you, to do what is required. In other words, I, I could require, just command you to do this. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And then verse 14. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. It's a different approach. Paul saying, I, I'm, I'm appealing to you. I could require, I could command you to do it, but I'm, I'm appealing to you. Uh, what, a, what a beautiful example of mature Christian leadership. Not, not overbearing, not manipulative, not self-serving. There's only a desire to encourage here, to draw the best out of Philemon. Also, Paul appeals to Philemon from uh, the position of empathy. An understanding. Uh, he presents himself as a prisoner. He's a prisoner for Christ. He's a, a man who knows what it means to suffer for the cause of Christ. He's saying, Philemon, I know. I know what it means to be violated, to be mistreated, and yet forgive. I know what it means to sacrifice and uh, be misunderstood, 
to engage in costly discipleship that's hard. So I'm not asking you to do something I'm I'm not willing to do myself. He's a Christian leader. This is, uh, this is leadership with its sleeves rolled up. What Paul's engaged in here is a, is a crucial aspect of Christian leadership. He's setting an example. He not only gives instruction, he models it. He strives to live out his Christian commitment and convictions. I think we all understand this, that living out our Christian convictions is what gives our witness integrity. Whether that be in our homes, those private places, or in the workplace, much more public setting, or in the church, or in the larger community. The Christian leader is to lead from a position of respect, empathy, and example. All of us have some leadership role in somebody's life. And this is the witness we're to give as Christian leaders. Peter. Um, Peter applies this specifically to, to pastors in 1 Peter chapter 5. I'll just read it to you. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, that's, that's the idea, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. To pastors, Christian leaders, Leading by example, being men of integrity, not perfect, but striving to grow and to live out in a way that is very Christ-honoring, Christ-like. The final application that I want to make has to do with the power of reconciliation. Martin Luther said that we're all God's onesimai. We're all on the run. We all need to be reconciled to God. We are God's onesimai. Just as, just as Onesimus was brought to faith on the run, trying to get lost in, in Rome... There's a sense in which we're all trying to run, trying to get away. 
never, he probably never expected that he'd have to go back to Colossae. I'm assuming that Onesimus never thought that he'd have to go back and be reconciled to Philemon. And yet this is exactly what's required of him. He was to go, go back, face Philemon, ask forgiveness, make restitution. You see these elements, these elements of reconciliation presented in several statements here in the text this morning. Uh, Verse 12, Paul writes, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Then verse 18 let me just say this. Just that line alone, you, you get a feeling. Paul is doing this knowing that Onesimus has to go back. He has to be reconciled to Philemon. Uh, Paul, in some ways, would prefer to keep him with him. And so it's a sacrifice on Paul's part as well. Then verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Making restitution. Whatever he owes, I'll, I'll pay It's important to understand that when we receive God's forgiveness, we're not excused from having to face the consequences of our sin. We're obligated to make every effort to heal broken relationships and to make restitution when it's appropriate. But the demand, the demand for reconciliation wasn't only directed to Onesimus. Philemon was also being asked to forgive. And uh, socially, this was something uh, that was very difficult for a slave owner to do. Uh, It was not required, it was not even expected that a that a slave owner would forgive a slave who had violated him and particularly had run away and had stolen from him. The slave was the master's property. And so this was hard. This was a challenge for Philemon as well because um, to forgive and to receive a runaway slave back sent the wrong message. It threatened to destabilize the established social order of the day. Onesimus was a slave. Philemon was a slave owner. Their roles in in society were well defined. And there were social expectations brought to bear on Philemon that challenged his character as a Christian. He's a man called out by God to serve God faithfully, and now he's confronted. What am I going to do? 
his slave has run away. Now I'm being asked to forgive him. If I forgive this slave, what are the other slave owners going to think? This is not something you do. He was expected to punish Onesimus. And he was expected to perhaps punish him him severely. But notice Paul's appeal to him. Verse 15. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while. That you might have him back forever. Not, no longer as a slave. But more than a slave. As a brother a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. That's the appeal. Paul's appealing to Philemon. Receive him back, challenging you to forgive. Paul's asking Philemon to resist social pressure by seeing Onesimus through through new eyes. Acknowledge, acknowledging Onesimus's personhood, his human dignity, and by receiving him back, not as a slave, but as a beloved Christian brother. That's a radical change in the nature of the relationship. Within the church, distinctions that accommodate pride and encourage prejudice are to be transformed by Christ into points of grace and expressions of mutual respect and equality. The church, the church is to provide the world with a prophetic witness to the character of the age to come, where people from every race, every culture, every walk of life live together, and they live together in peace under the lordship of Jesus. That's our role in the world. We behave differently. We understand that our relationships are are different. We're brothers. We're sisters. We're related to one another. Part of this, this grand gathering of God's people. Members of the kingdom of God. Real, real social and cultural change begins with genuine conversion, which radically alters our way of seeing ourselves and seeing the world. And it also reshapes our attitudes toward one another. So, uh, packed into this, uh, this little note from Paul, our... Uh, a number of profound Christian understandings, understandings that define us as God's people, redemptive 
Providence is one of those understandings. Humble leadership and radical reconciliation. Those are crucial components of um, the Christian life and our understanding of how we interact and relate to one another. Let's pray that God would help us to grow in the, these, these uh, graces. Father, we thank you. I'm grateful today for um, this instruction that Paul gives us by way of this very simple and small note. We're thankful, Lord. We're thankful for the work of grace in our lives and also in the lives of those around us that we rub shoulders with within the life of the church. We stand in awe at all that you have done for us and in our lives. Pray that you would now take your word and may it do a deep work in all of us. May we uh, acknowledge how wondrous our salvation is and how gracious you've been. We commit our lives to you today. Lord, as we come now to the closing portion of our service, gathering around your table, pray that your presence would be sensed. In Jesus' name, amen.